Um, take your Bibles, turn with me this morning, Matthew chapter number 5. Matthew chapter number 5. Our last message on Matthew chapter 5, we were in verse 20. And in verse 20, Jesus has made a statement that has left his audience with their mouths gaping open. Because he made this statement. Talking to the masses here, he, ta- he says, I tell you, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and the Pharisees, you will never enter into the kingdom of heaven. Now in verse 21, Jesus goes on to introduce six great examples of how that righteousness that he has described in verse 20 is a continuation and a fulfillment of the Old Testament law. Jesus introduces each of these great statements with some variation of this phrase. You have heard it said, but I say to you. We're going to see it in verse 21. We're going to see it in verse 27. In verse 31, verse 33, verse 38, verse 43. And I'd invite you to take a pen or pencil and underline those every time they occur in your text. Now, some commentators hold that these statements of Jesus makes it that he is setting himself against the law of Moses, that he is making his statements mean something akin to, well, you know what the Old Testament says, but now I have something else to teach you, something different. They believe uh, the phrase, you have heard, refers to the Old Testament teachings, and the phrase, but I say, introduces a new teaching of the Lord which supersedes the old. Such is really not the case. You have heard introduces an erroneous or incomplete understanding of the Old Testament, this that the scribes have been teaching what we call the oral law, while, but I say to you, is followed by the teaching of the Lord, which corrects or brings a correct teaching of the Old Testament and is in line with what Jesus is now teaching. So what Jesus is doing is not contradicting the law or setting in place a new set of laws, but he is correcting the people's understanding of what... The Old Testament law really says. He is correcting their understanding of God's intent when he gave those commands. Now you do need to remember that the knowledge of the people about the word of God was limited to what they were told by the scribes and the Pharisees. They could not read it for themselves. Now we certainly don't have that excuse today. We can read it for ourselves, and we can understand what the Word of God says. Now, as we examine each of these issues that Jesus raises, we have to recognize that each one of those six could be a sermon in and of itself. But today, I've chosen rather to deal with them all together. Let me say at the outset that it's possible, as I hit on all six of these, that you may feel conviction in your life because of some failure in one of those areas. You may be guilty as charged, but you also need to understand that God is bigger than your sins. God is able and willing to forgive your sins. You're 
If you are willing to bring your sins to Jesus, He's willing to forgive you. Now stay with me as we begin our journey together. And we look, first of all, at the issue of anger. The issue of anger in verse 21. You have heard, you might underline that, you have heard that it was said to those of old, you shall not murder. And whoever murders will be in danger of judgment. But I say to you that whoever is angry with his brother without a cause shall be in danger of judgment. And whoever says to his brother, Raka, shall be in danger of the council. But whoever says, you fool, shall be in, the danger, in danger of hell fire. According to the scribes and Pharisees and what they taught, uh, as long as you didn't actually commit murder, you were okay. As long as you didn't actually take someone outside, knock them over the head with something, shoot them in the head, you were fine, you were not guilty of this sin. But Jesus warns that holding bitter resentment in your heart is also a sin. We've all heard the statement, if looks could kill, then they would be dead. We mean that the burning anger that someone has in their heart shows in their face. Both long-held resentment and explosive anger are sins. And it would be ridiculous uh, to make a jump in logic here that says, well, anger is just as bad as murder. Not for me. If you want to be angry at me, great. Murder's another thing. Don't you agree? The person who shouts in anger has sinned, but not in the same degree that someone who has actually committed murder. To hold bitter resentment toward another is to place ourselves, Jesus says, in a dangerous position. That The term raka is a reflection on somebody's intelligence and is in our day the equivalent of calling them stupid, lame brain, nitwit, blockhead. You kind of got the idea, right? However, even more dangerous, Jesus says, is to question a man's moral character, which is what is implied when you call someone a fool. Jesus then makes two very practical applications. First of all, in the area of worship in verse 23. Therefore, if you bring your gift to the altar, and there remember that your brother has something against you, then leave your gift there before the altar and go your way. First be reconciled to your brother, and then come and offer your gift. If anger is a sin, and it certainly can be, and if sin affects our relationship with God, then we cannot worship and harbor anger in our heart toward a brother or sister. The principle is very simple. If you're harboring anger or grudge against someone, attendance in worship then is only an exercise in hypocritical futility. In the area of civil law, he makes the application in verses 25 and 26. Agree with your adversary quickly while you're on the way with him, lest your adversary deliver you to the judge. The judge hands you over to the officer and you be thrown into prison. Assuredly, I say to you, you will by no means get out of there till you have paid the last penny. The point that Jesus is making is that there is wisdom in settling issues quickly. Rather than waiting for the law to take it in its hands and take someone to court, uh, he says that we ought to be willing to settle out of court, if you will. 
But I think you understand that even our day, when the issue goes to court, very often both sides lose. The second issue that he brings up is the issue of faithfulness. In verses 27 through 30, he says, You have heard that it was said to those old, You shall not commit adultery. But I say to you, whoever looks at a woman to lust for her has already committed adultery with her in his heart. If your right eye causes you to sin, pluck it out and cast it from you, for it shall be more profitable for you that one of your members perish than for your whole body to be cast into hell. And if your right hand causes you to sin, cut it off and cast it from you, for it is more profitable for you that one of your members perish than for your whole body to be cast into hell. Jesus now turns his attention to the seventh commandment. Do not commit adultery. And Jesus now issues a radical new standard of sexual purity. Jesus says adultery begins in the heart. Sexual sins are always predicated by sexual fantasies. What you allow your mind to dwell on is what ultimately occurs. Jesus is not saying, again, that the act of adultery and adultery in the heart are the same thing, that they are equivalent Some have even justified their act of adultery by saying, well, I already committed adultery in my heart, so I might as well carry through with the physical act. That's absurd. The act of adultery is far worse than adultery in the heart. The point that Jesus is making is that both are sins. Both need to be confessed. Both need to be forsaken. And both need to be forgiven. When Jesus says in verse 29, if your right hand causes you to sin, pluck it out. Let me say that over the centuries that verse has been abused. I don't believe that Jesus is talking literally here. He's using a figure of speech. I do believe that what Jesus means here is that sin is a serious business. And that it always demands a radical response. Sin should not be justified or excused, or, but it needs to be recognized, repented of, and the causes of that sin avoided. I like what, the, what John Stott wrote about this because I think that he hits it right on the head. He says, what, what does this involve in practice? Well, let me elaborate and so interpret Jesus' teaching. If your eye causes you to sin because temptation comes to you through your eyes, objects that you see, then pluck out your eyes. That is, don't look. Behave as if you had actually plucked out your eyes and flung them from you and were now blind and could no longer see the objects which previously caused you to sin. Again, if your hand or your foot causes you to sin because of temptation, coming to you through your hands, things that you do, or your feet, places you go, then cut them off. That is, don't do it. Don't go. Behave as if you had actually cut off your hands and your feet and flung them from you and were now crippled, and so you could not do those things or visit those places which had previously caused you to sin. The third issue that he brings up is the issue of divorce. Verse 31 says, Furthermore, it has been said, Whoever divorces his wife, let him give her a certificate of divorce. 
But I say to you that whoever divorces his wife for any reason except sexual immorality causes her to commit adultery, and whoever marries a woman who is divorced commits adultery. Perhaps everyone in this congregation has been touched by divorce in some way. Well, over half the marriages in our country now end the divorce, so it eventually affects virtually everyone. The church of today is often guilty of approaching divorce in the same way the scribes and the Pharisees did. We either raise the standard or we lower the standard. Some today, in trying to stem the tide of divorce, say there is no divorce for any reason and there is no remarriage for anyone at any time. Sounds nice and neat, but in reality it is unbiblical and impractical. The opposite, of course, is the tendency to lower the standard to accommodate everyone. The situation in Jesus' day was that some felt that a man, and notice I say a man, a woman didn't have the right to divorce. A man could divorce his wife for virtually any reason, even burning his breakfast. And others held that one could divorce only on the grounds of unfaithfulness. But when you cut through all the semantics, they all assume that divorce was a biblical option. They only argued over the grounds for divorce. Their interest was purely procedural. We have to recognize, as we look at this passage this morning, that Jesus only touches on divorce here. This is not his full revelation on the subject. This is his not his most extensive teaching on the subject. We'll cover that at length when we get to Matthew chapter 19, where the religious leaders tried to trap Jesus over that very issue. But Jesus is just pointing out another area that the scribes and the Pharisees have moved away from what the Word of God actually says. Perhaps the most difficult verse for us today is verse 32, when it states, whoever divorces his wife for any reason, except sexual immorality, causes her to commit adultery. And whoever marries a woman who is divorced commits adultery. Now some churches today take this passage completely literally. And they demand that remarried partners break up their current marriages and go in return to their original partners. But in practice, that only creates two more divorces. How can that be the answer? I think it's fair to say what you need to understand more than anything else this morning is God holds you to accountable to the marriage you're in. The fourth thing that you need to see is the issue of truthfulness. Again, you have heard, verse 33, that it's said to those of old, you shall not swear falsely, but, I shall, but you shall perform your oaths to the Lord. But I say to you, do not swear at all, neither by heaven, for it is God's throne, nor by the earth, for it is his footstool, nor by Jerusalem, for it is the city of the great king, nor shall you swear by your head, because it cannot, you cannot make one hair white or black, but let your yes be yes, and your no, no, for whatever is more than these is from the evil one. The truth is that the Old Testament has a lot to say about oaths. Leviticus 19.12 says, You shall not swear by my name falsely. 
Numbers chapter 30 and verse 2 says, If a man makes a vow to the Lord and swears an oath to bind himself by some agreement, he shall not break his word. Deuteronomy 23, 21 says, And when you make a vow to the Lord your God, you shall not delay to pay it. God has not forbidden the taking of an oath, but has cautioned that one who makes an oath must keep his word. Now, there are two abuses of the taking of oaths in the day of our Lord. One might be called frivolous swearing. Men used oaths or profanity sometimes in order to give emphasis to their words. And sometimes when I hear somebody being profane, using bad language today, I figure they just don't have a good vocabulary. They can't come up with good words to describe what they're feeling, so they resort to profanity. The, this kind of oath-taking is obviously forbidden by the Old Testament, which says, you shall not take the name of the Lord your God in vain. Technically speaking, profanity is a common or indiscriminate use of God's name, and God has forbidden this. The second abuse of an oath was more deliberate and more malicious and will help you to understand what Jesus is saying here, and that is evasive swearing. In the third commandment, God had said, Ye shall not take the name of the Lord your God, what? In vain. The emphasis on in vain. They have taken that same commandment and they've shifted the emphasis. For them now, the emphasis is on you shall not take the name of the Lord, your God, in vain. The emphasis being on the name. And there is a substantial difference between the two. There is an oath, thereby an oath was not so much a matter of keeping your word, but of phrasing your oath in such a way that you didn't have to keep your word. Any vow, which included the name of God, had to be kept. So one had to very carefully avoid using the name of God because then they were not technically bound by this oath. So one could swear, as you see in this verse, by heaven or by Jerusalem or by the temple or even cross my heart and hope and die and not have to keep his word because he hadn't used the name of the Lord in that vow. The effect was that the people would be deceived into accepting a man and his oath, but the man himself felt no obligation to keep that word. Now, Matthew later records Jesus speaking decisively on this issue in Matthew chapter 23, where he reminds those who are hearing him that God is a part of every oath anyway. If you swear by heaven or earth or Jerusalem or your head, you swear by God, and your oath must be honored. Our Lord's interpretation of the Old Testament revelation here restored proper emphasis on what really mattered. When you give your word, keep it. Having to swear or to make oaths only betrays the weakness of our word. If someone has to get us into a corner and say, I swear that you're telling the truth, there's obviously a problem with our integrity. Say what you mean. Mean what you say. If one has to take an oath that they are telling the truth, they're probably not believable anyway. The fifth issue is the issue of revenge. You've heard that it was said, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. But I tell you not to resist an evil person, but whoever slaps you on the right cheek, 
turn the, the other to him also. And if anyone wants to sue you and take away your tunic, let him have your cloak also. And whoever compels you to go one mile, go with him too. Give to him who asks you, and from him who wants to borrow from you, do not turn away. Perhaps you've heard the story of the weary truck driver who pulled his rig into an all-night truck stop. He was tired, and he was hungry, and the waitress had just served him his food when three tough-looking bikers walked in, leather-jacketed, you know, the Hells Angels type, and they decided to give him a hard time. Not only did they verbally abuse him, but one of them grabbed his hamburger off his plate, another took a handful of his french fries, and a third picked up his coffee and began to drink it. How did the trunk driver respond? How would you respond? Well, this trucker did not respond as one might have expected. Instead, he calmly got to his feet, he picked up his check, he walked to the cash register, he paid for his bill, he went out the door. As the waitress put the money in the cash register and stood looking out the door, she watched as the truck driver drove off. She, when she returned, one of the cyclists said to her, Well, he wasn't much of a man, was he? She said, I don't know how much of a man he was, but he wasn't much of a truck driver. He just ran over three motorcycles on his way out. <laughs> on some level, we like that, don't we? <clears throat> because we have all felt the human desire to get even, to bring things right. We've all heard the old saying, I don't get mad, I get even. Perhaps the most quoted and abused phrase in the Old Testament is found there in this text. It comes from Exodus chapter 21, verse 24, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. If you read that verse in context, you discover that it is directed to the judges of Israel. And it applied to the administration of civil justice, not personal revenge. It assured that justice was going to be fair, that people received no more or no less than they deserved. What happened was the principle was perverted to a biblical support for retaliation and revenge, and Jesus gives us a very practical and radical fourfold solution to the heart of retaliation. First of all, he says, turn the other cheek. Now, if you read, you'll understand that what he is describing is a deliberate slap. Right-handed man delivering a slap to the right cheek of a person would have to do it backhanded. What he is describing is an attempt Not to do bodily harm, but was an effort to insult and perhaps to provoke retaliation. Someone backhanded someone. It is wrong to think that Jesus means that a physical attack to your person cannot be resisted. That we cannot defend ourselves. That doesn't mean that. It doesn't mean that if someone attacks you with a baseball bat that you are, and hits you on the right side of the head, you're supposed to allow him to hit you on the other side of the head as well. That's not what it's describing. He's talking about dealing with an insult, not with physical violence. In verse 40, he talks about one way that we can make sure that things go not the way people think they should is to give more than is required. 
He says, if someone is coming against you and you want to go the extra mile, give more than is required. The second thing is to go the extra mile in verse 41. At that time, Jesus, Jesus was talking. Judea was under a Roman military occupation. And any Roman soldier could come up to any Jew and say, you must carry my pack for one mile. It was insulting. It was degrading. It was humiliating. Jesus says, here's a way that you can turn that around and make it into something different. He says, go an extra mile and transform what was an attempt to manipulate you into a free act of service. In verse 42, he says, show mercy to those who are less fortunate. One final word. There's a great deal of difference between standing for our rights and standing up for what is right. Jesus does not tell us not to stand up for what is right. He, needs, he says we need to be careful about always standing for our rights. We may and should be willing to suffer innocently for the cause of Christ. But we have the responsibility as Christians to stand up for law and for order and for justice. The sixth and final issue is the issue of who is my neighbor. You've heard that it was said, he says in verse 43, you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy, but I say to you, love your enemies, bless those who cursed you, do good to those who hate you, and pray for those who despitefully use you and persecute you, that you may be the sons of your Father in heaven, for he makes his son to, sh to rise on the evil and on the good and sends rain on the just and on the unjust. For if you love those who love you, what reward have you for not even the tax collectors do the same? And if you greet your brethren only, what do you more than the others? Do not even the tax collectors do so? Therefore, you shall be perfect, just as your Father in heaven is perfect. The scribes and the Pharisees had taken the command to love their neighbor. And they have added an opposite but equal commandment, equal obligation. You must love your neighbor and hate your enemy. That's not what the Word of God said. Although it fit neatly in with their common sense of what they should do in that day, it was not what God said at all. Jesus says the Christian is to live by a higher standard, that they are to love their enemies, they are to pray for those who persecute them, because praying for your enemy has a potential to do two things. It can change your circumstances and it will change you Jesus has given us an application of the word of God he is telling us that we need to engage in that kind of behavior because in so doing we will look more like our heavenly father let me close with this illustration it was a day after Christmas and Mr. Green parked his car to pick up the morning paper he noticed as he did so there was a dirty little poorly dressed boy looking at his car. And seeing that boy eyeing the car, he reminded himself that he better be quick or that when he returned, he might be missing his hubcaps. So he came out of the store with his paper under his arm, and just as he opened the door to the car, the boy asked, Mr., how much would a new car like that cost? Mr. Green responded by saying, you know, I don't really know. My brother gave me this car as a gift. The ragged little boy looked 
rather unbelievingly at the car with a look of wonder in his eyes, and he said something most unexpected. He didn't say what you might think. Gee, I wish I had a brother like that. What he said was, gee, I wish I could be a brother like that. That is what God is calling us to be to those who are around us, to live above the standards of this world. Let's pray. Father, thank you for the day. Thank you for this good crowd you've brought here today and for their presence here. We're especially grateful for those who are visiting with us this morning. I pray, Lord, that you'd help us to make them welcome. And now, Lord, in our closing time together, there may be someone here that recognizes that they've never accepted you as their personal Savior and they know they need to. They walked away from you and they need to walk back to you. Uh, They may just have someone on their heart that they need to come and pray for. Whatever, Lord, it is that uh, you are trying to achieve in our hearts and lives today, we want to give this time over to you. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Would you stand with me, please? Brother Steve's going to be here. If you're here this morning, God's spoken to you in some way. I want to encourage you to come. We're not going to have a long invitation this morning. But if you're here and you need to respond in some way, these altars are here. If you need to come and spend some time here, no one will bother you. If you need to make a public decision, Brother Steve will guide you with that. Whatever you need to do, why don't you come right now? Just as I am with our one plea.